1582, the Jesuit priest Antonio Pozzovino arrived in Moscow on a diplomatic mission to meet Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible of Russia. His task was given him by Pope Gregory XIII, the same Pope who introduced the modern Gregorian calendar, the one Russia only converted to in 1917. And his mission was no less than to heal the schism of the Orthodox and Catholic churches, to bring Russia into line and back into the one true faith, into, if you like, the Catholic rules-based order. But Antonio Possovino was dreadfully uninformed about the reality of Russia, and his dialogue with Ivan the Terrible about uh, the Orthodox faith and its attitude to the Roman Pope went dreadfully wrong. At one point, Antonio Possovino later wrote in his memoir, the Prince Ivan the Terrible flew into a rage and stood right up from his throne. Everyone was sure that he would strike and kill me as he had others, including even his own son, with the iron-tipped staff he carries the way the Pope does his pastoral rod. Quoting Ivan, Possovino wrote, There are peasants outside, he cried, who would show you what it means to talk to me like a peasant. Was this account of a Western European diplomat to Russia in the 16th century true, or was it one of many examples of the black legend of Russian history as applied to Ivan the Terrible? That is the question on today's Burning Archive. So welcome everyone to the Burning Archive. I am Jeff Rich. I am a, well, obviously a podcaster, but uh, I am also a a writer, historian, and now retired government official looking for some other form of employment. So do help me out by uh, sharing and liking and showing your support for the Burning Archive podcast. And this podcast is my latest in a series on the black legend of Russian history, which uh, is a sort of term coined by the historian Mark B. Smith in his book, The Russia Anxiety, uh, which is sort of the story of dark autocracy dominating Russian history. And we've talked about the difficult 20th century for Russia, the golden age of the 19th century, In War and Peace, we've talked about the remarkable Russian Enlightenment of the 18th century, Peter the Great, most remarkably still, Catherine the Great, and the great polymath Lomonsonov. And last time we spoke about the extraordinary stories related to the time of troubles, false Dmitri, Boris Godunov, and the murder mysteries. And the time of troubles were kicked 
off to some degree by the actions and the legacy and the difficult situations created by the topic of today's podcast, uh, which I'm going to do over two episodes because this topic, this uh, individual is so enormous, so mythic, so legendary and so important to uh, the black legend of Russian history that uh, he kind of deserves uh, at least two episodes and that person is Ivan the Fourth, Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible. And like, uh, I guess, Genghis Khan, Ivan the Terrible is one of those villains of history who is certainly uh, has a track record of cruel and difficult acts, but uh, whose is poorly understood. But, uh, but he is also someone where it is difficult to disentangle man and myth. And the myth is fundamental to the black legend of Russian history because Ivan the Terrible was a cruel autocrat uh, and a a zealous advocate of uh, absolute power, I guess. Whether he succeeded in his ambitions is another question. Who killed many, many people and quite likely had some form of mental illness, although, of course, it's impossible to really know at the distance of, uh, you know, nearly 500 years. But he also implemented a for a reign of terror, I guess, uh, which a, a very unique and enigmatic institution called the Oprichnina, uh, which operated for seven years in Russia, which was a kind of almost like a, I guess, like a, a, a death cult almost, uh, but also a kind of well, has often been presented as a as a a, a proto KGB Stalinist terror, and so he um, is often twinned in portraits of Russian history together with this sort of line of successors of cruel autocrats Ivan the Terrible, Stalin. And more recently, Vladimir Putin. And of course, I'm not saying that uh, Ivan was a saint. But as we learned in the first episode on the black legend of Russian history, a lot of this uh, talk about Russian history is has a geopolitical colouring, ideological colouring, Russophobic colouring. And, and other uh, prejudice to it, and and that is equally true of Ivan the Terrible. And then, what's more, Ivan the Terrible is also simply a very difficult person and individual to understand. Some of the things that he did, like the Oprichnina, 
are just genuinely almost, my God, how do you explain this? He abdicated twice, once with a sort of almost like a uh, kind of a stew, like a uh, installing almost like a puppet king in his place. He He did all sorts of very strange and difficult things to understand and understandably as a result of that historians offer wildly different interpretations of whether what he did made any sense at all whether it was simple madness whether it was simple cruelty whether it represented the you know, the true darkness of the Russian soul or the true darkness of the autocratic Russian state or whether it was all a big, chaotic, erratic attempt to deal with some very difficult uh, problems, some of which perhaps were even shared with the other uh, Eurasian states of the period. So, Inherently, he is a difficult person to understand, so we should realise that many of the confident interpretations and the cliched image, the images that are presented are, well, can easily descend into dogmatic interpretations of what are actually deep, deep enigmas. And this is partly what makes him uh, fascinating, I guess, how do you explain what the hell he did um, and how do you sort of solve it? And then it's made even more difficult to understand things because so much, uh, there, there is so little uh, solid, grounded historical uh, documentation and evidence for his uh, life and his motives and the explanations of his conduct. So just for example, the little uh, excerpt that I read from the Moscovia of Antonio Possovino, which is his, uh, I guess, his diplomatic report to the Pope in the uh, 1580s on his diplomatic mission to Russia, well, I mean, that is his account, and he said in his account that he was sure that the Tsar uh, was about to kill him, but was that just Antonio Possovino, who, after all, had demonstrated a profound ignorance of uh, Rus the Russian state, the Russian culture, the Russian history, which is why he had so deeply offended Ivan the Terrible. Uh, that he should stand up in his chair and say, stop talking to me like that, even to the point of just assuming that Russia was ready to give up the Orthodox faith uh, because the Pope wanted them to do so. Can we really rely on Antonio Possovino's account? And another example, there are some famous letters written by Ivan the Terrible to a Prince Andrei Kerbsky. Uh, and from those letters is uh, where we learn a lot of Ivan the Terrible's childhood and his experiences and his views on um, various matters. But there was at least one eminent American 
uh, Russian scholar, as in scholar of Russia, Edward Keenan, who claimed that these letters were later forgeries and that one could not could not say anything on the basis of Ivan, or, or, or say anything about Ivan the Terrible on the basis of him. And in fact, he went even further and asserted confidently that Ivan the Terrible was illiterate. He could not possibly have written such powerful and extraordinary letters. Now, I'm not saying that, in fact, most scholars now discount Edward Keenan's uh, view and of course they were it, this he articulated this view in the 1960s and the 1970s in the height of the cold war so perhaps there were some uh socio-historical cultural context for what he was claiming but it just goes to show the un- sheer uncertainty uh there are just so many things about ivan's life and his uh, motives and his ideas and his actions that sort of seen through a, you know seen through a glass darkly but that simply makes him a more fascinating figure for people interested in history because well you know he clearly is a crucial figure who had an enormous impact on people who was a larger-than-life character. And yet, how, you know, sort of how do we make sense of what the hell he's doing and how do we explain it? And it's also all happening at a really crucial time in uh, Russian history. So Ivan the Terrible occupies this absolutely pivotal moment in Russian history where I guess the uh, he is the first ruler of Russia who claims the title of Tsar, which is a kind of a Russian version of Caesar, as in a Roman emperor, and to some degree sees himself as uh, the successor to the Byzantine Roman emperor, and who both gathers together the various Russian principalities of Moscow and Novgorod and Tver and Ryazan and Vladimir and all those sort of places, as well as expands Russia to the south and to the the east. In fact, the first really big inways into Siberia, bringing Siberia under Russian, clear Russian administrative control uh, is in Ivan the Terrible's uh, reign. So it's an absolutely pivotal moment in Russian history. He's clearly a larger-than-life figure. His actions are, are strange to some degree. They readily attract the, that, you know, terribly that question-begging term evil, but they are clearly violent and disordered, um, but they also seem to, in many ways, seem to be quite effective. So how can we actually find some sort of coherent explanation for all of this? But without turning Ivan into some uh, caricature out of the black legend or some 
cartoon villain, uh, which, to be frank, uh, so much of the Anglo-American historical tradition tends to do. So one of the ways in which you can kind of do that is to have a bit of a look at some of the historical setting of uh, Russia uh, at the time and to see Ivan as perhaps uh, a bit on the extreme of the continuum of violence, sure, but also in a way a part of, you know, on the continuum of ways of exercising power and building states in the 16th century. In a way, he was a not atypical European Renaissance or even Eurasian Euro- Renaissance prince. And this is the kind of approach taken by the great biographer of Ivan the Terrible, Isabella uh, de Madariaga. As she says in the biography, she has tried to write the history of Ivan IV standing in Moscow and looking out over the walls of the Kremlin towards the rest of Europe and not looking in and down into Russia over its western border from the outside. Adopting such an approach makes it easier to avoid supercilious judgments, to grasp what happened in Russia in Russian terms, to feel its full tragedy. Uh, She also comments that the problems that uh, faced Ivan IV as ruler were uh, not so different from those that faced France, Germany and to a lesser degree England. England, after all, was in a pretty turbulent state in the Elizabethan, pre-Elizabethan and post-Elizabethan era and uh, Ivan the Terrible was a contemporary, indeed a correspondent with Queen Elizabeth I of England. And even just thinking about cruelties and massacres, which, and we'll certainly cover those when I give a bit of a narrative of Ivan's life, uh, even on this program, on the Burning Archive uh, program, uh, we you might recall the uh, episode on the Medici's, where uh, which was episode number fifty-three uh, in May uh, twenty twenty-two, that uh, talked about the Medici. Who uh, I mean, there were some pretty bad Medici popes, and there was, of course, the quite fascinating and. Uh, uh, significant figure Catherine de Medici who had a major cultural influence but who also was behind the Saint Bartholomew's uh, massacre in Paris uh, which killed thousands and thousands of people which happened two years after Ivan the Terrible's infamous and uh, cruel massacre of uh, the citizens of Novgorod in 1570. So 
not drawing moral equivalences and all that, but again, I guess we need to see these events in a balanced comparative perspective without the black legend of Russian history. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is uh, provide a bit of a narrative account of this incredible figure after sort of introducing his... I guess fascinate just the enigma and fascination about him and some of his sort of the the importance of his the myths about Ivan the Terrible to the historiography and the popular culture around Ivan the Terrible and the importance of sort of seeing him in a more realistic historical setting uh, a very complex historical setting because, as we've discussed, Russia was not just a European state. It was a state actively involved with uh, the Ottomans, the Crimean Tatars, the uh, the sort of uh, Central Asia, Siberia and all the rest of it. So it was really, even then, a Eurasian power. So uh, I'm going to give a bit of a narrative account and sort of summarise some of those key themes in this episode. And then in the next episode, I'm going to talk about some underlying common themes, I guess, in the story of Ivan the Terrible and why why he is so uh, fascinating. Okay, so the narrative of Ivan's life and times. Uh, before going into the detailed events, uh, let me just read a framing paragraph and sentence or two from Sergei Bogatyrev's chapter on Ivan the Fourth in the Cambridge History of Russia, Volume One, from early US to sixteen eighty nine. And Sergei Bogatyrev is a Russian uh, historian. I think he works at the University College of London uh, is a bit of a specialist on Ivan the Terrible and the actual realities of how he, uh, the institutions of power sort of worked uh, around Ivan the Terrible and has uh, over recent years started to sort of take away a little bit of some of the uh, ideological, uh, sort of Anglo-American ideological sort of carapace uh, that you know, hangs over still the interpretation of Ivan the Terrible. Uh, so this is a bit of a framing comment to help you follow the uh, extraordinary set of events which we'll co- uh, cover with a little bit more colour in life. So Bogatyrev writes, One of the longest reigns in Russian history, the rule of Ivan the Fourth, was uh, a period of ambitious political, military and cultural projects. The ruling family sought to utilise all the material and human resources of the realm to strengthen in political power and to integrate territories with diverse cultural and economic traditions into a single state. These aims did not always complement each other. As a result, the integration As a result of integration, the Muscovite state became increasingly complex, both socially and politically. This, in turn, put the dynasty under pressure from various forces operating in the centre, in the provinces and on the international arena. As the leader of the dynasty, 
Ivan responded decisively to the challenges of integration, though his reaction was often erratic and inconsistent. So that's the first paragraph from Bogataev's sort of quite authoritative chapter on Ivan IV. And his final concluding remarks are that Ivan left to his successors a devastated but coherent state that retained its territorial integrity even in spite of the stormy events of the time of troubles. As a result of Ivan's rule, Muscovy became a self-sufficient polity at an immensely high price. So there's good and there's bad, and perhaps what's lacking in that uh, account is just the spectacular human psychodrama of Ivan's life, but we'll get uh, enough of that in the following details. Uh, but if, if I just say one more thing about Bogotarev's thing that might uh, help relate it to common understanding. So if we think about Henry VIII and to some degree Elizabeth I, but particularly Henry VIII, he's a central figure in English history. He's an iconic figure in English history. He's also a pretty wicked man. He, you know, As we know, he had six wives and he killed... Um, uh, a number of them, uh, <laughs> beheaded a number of them on pretty, pretty uh, petty grounds about them displeasing him in one way or the other. He he broke off from the Catholic Church and uh, was, um, you know, also pretty vicious towards some of his key advisors. And he's a near contemporary uh, to to Henry to to Ivan the Terrible, but he was also encountering some of these similar tensions. He you know he he sort of looted and uh, as part of his takeover, he he made himself head of the Church of England. He took over all the monasteries. He looted all the monasteries. He sort of um, was pretty nasty to a lot of the Catholic priests and to. Uh, began an era of some pretty dark persecution and terror of uh, Catholics in England. Not exactly a reign of uh, free speech. And this continues on into uh, the Elizabethan era. So there's some of those same forces of states and dynasties growing in their power and their assertiveness and asserting their power over other institutions within the society, whether they're aristocrats and barons and lords or whether they're uh, the church. And um, getting getting more powerful with taxation, with new military technologies and the sort of uh, greater capacity to acquire and control territories beyond uh, more narrow sort of medieval confines. In many ways, that's partly what I mean by Ivan the Terrible being not so different to other European Renaissance princes. So if we just open our eyes a little bit from the sort of black legend of Russian history and look at uh, uh, the situation that 
uh, and the individuals that are in this situation more openly, we might see some of those similar tensions, similar dynamics. Okay, on with the narrative. So, in a way, the story kind of begins uh, way back in 1380, where there is a famous battle in Russia, the Battle of Kulkova, which effectively ends the Mongol yoke. And I'll talk about what the Mongol Tatar yoke was. Uh, but it was effectively a period of several hundred years where the Mongol Empire, the Golden Horde, effectively exercised dominion over all the various Russian principalities in the 1200s. At some point they came in and destroyed Kiev. And there was a sort of a modus vivendi between the Russian princes and the, uh, the Mongol or, uh, yeah, the Mongol Uh, empire around um, local control as long as they paid tribute back to the Mongols but there were regular raids and all that sort of stuff so in the late 1300s these Russian principalities which are all quite sort of small uh, sort of throw off the Mongol yoke and start to become independent states but they're all a little bit small and suboptimal so over the next century or so, there is this sort of process of uh, amalgamation, let's say, of these, of these sort of small and you know non-viable local governments into a more coherent state. Uh, and then in in 1437, and again, these are important background events. In 1437, there's a Council of Florence where the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, in the context of the Ottoman sort of empire, you know, banging on the doors of Constantinople, threatening to finally take over this uh, ancient Christian city. They have a, a special council to try to heal the schism. Uh, between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. And there is a Russian priest who says, yeah, okay, we agree. But uh, the Russian Tsar, or the Muscovite Tsar, says, no way, you you did not have uh, the authority to negotiate that. And sort of basically sort of, you know, exiles and punishes the priest and and the church goes uh, retains its orthodox catholic faith now that set of events was the key thing that antonio possavino didn't bother to get his facts straight on when he had his discussion with ivan the terrible which was why uh, his discussion did not go so well then in 1453 constantinople falls so the byzantine empire the the roman empire finally after whatever it is, 2,000 years, collapses. And the, uh, I guess, the centre of gravity of the Christian Orthodox world moves towards Moscow. Because Islam is now in control of what we now think of as Greece and Turkey and uh, even, you know, parts of Hungary and Ukraine. Between 1478 and 1520, uh, the Principality of Muscovy, the central 
state which is on the crossroads of some big rivers and trade routes gradually gains control of the other main sort of, you know, fragmented local governments, fragmented appanage principalities, Novgorod, Tver, Peskov, Smolensk and Ryazan. And at the same time, of course, the Reformation is happening in Europe. Europe is descending into, uh, you know, I guess ideological, cultural war and social unrest and institutional corruption and all the rest of it. So Europe is not exactly, you know, a shining European, West European Christianity is not exactly a shining light of hope and wonder at this point. And in the 1520s is when Ivan the Terrible is born. In fact, it was 1530 that uh, Ivan the Terrible was born and at the age of three he becomes Grand Prince of Muscovy, the then title, as well as various other principalities. His uh, long list of titles is a little bit long to read. Just to call him the Prince of Muscovy is also just a little bit misleading. He is suddenly the head of Russia, although he is three years old. So obviously someone has to stand in his stead as regent. And that regent is his mother, Yelena Glinskaya, who uh, for the next five years operates as a regent. And uh, so she's kind of de facto uh, ruler of Russia at this point. But there are all those forces of disintegration that Sergei Bogatyrov was talking about, all that intrigue and tension within the court, leading families wanting to uh, have control and perhaps probably also some level of resistance at rule by uh, a woman, although, of course, it was not entirely unknown in the 16th century. But in 1538, Yelena Glinskaya dies, and uh, I think uh, certainly Ivan the Terrible always believed that his mother was poisoned. Uh, I think there might be research on that, but I'm not entirely sure. I can't remember what it is. And not only that, but uh, Ivan the Terrible's governess, uh, I guess his his carer, his de facto carer, was stolen away from, like literally, you know, kind of grabbed by the the sort of uh, guards of the newly installed Boyer clan that was operating in his stead. So at this point, Ivan is a bare eight years old and his mother's been ripped away from him. His principal carer's been ripped away from him. He has uh, barely, barely any sort of knowledge of his father. And he is in a nest of vipers. He harbored the resentment about this for a long time. And I can actually read from a letter that Ivan wrote in later life to Andrei Kurpsky, that letter that 
uh, has been relied upon really for many biographies of uh, that that uh, Edward Keenan disputed the authenticity of, but now most historians accept as valid because it's written in a very unique and forceful style that they find in other diplomatic letters. So there is quite a bit of evidence to suggest it is genuinely Ivan's. And he says, Me and my brother George, of blessed memory, they brought up like vagrants and children of the poorest, what have I not suffered for want of garments and food and all that against my will and as did not become my extreme youth? I shall mention just one thing. Once in my childhood we were playing and Prince Ivan Vasilievich Shusky, and yes, that is the same Shusky family that uh, got a mention in the episode on the Time of Troubles, was sitting on a bench, leaning with his elbow against our father's bed, and even putting his foot upon it. He treated us not as a parent, but as a master, who could bear such presumption. How can I recount all the miseries which I have suffered in my youth? But survive he does, and at the age of 17, he is crowned Tsar, and then he gets his revenge on the Shuskis. And in some accounts, so even at this point, there is uh, there are accounts of Ivan doing cruel and nasty things, you know, kind of um, something a little bit like... Joffrey in Game of Thrones, but whether they are true or just the typical kind of tropes about wild adolescent boys, wild violent adolescent boys, we can't entirely know. And then for the next decade or so, there's a period where Ivan is quite effective as a ruler. Uh, and there's various speculation about all of this, whether he was influenced by particular counsellors, particular advisors or not. And there's a lot of complicated historic or complicated historiographical uh, debate around it. But in this first period, up to approximately uh, 1560 or so, Ivan does lots of good things he integrate he does a whole series of i guess what you could call social and domestic uh economic reform or policy reform he introduces a new law code in 1555 in 1551 there's a very important church council called the Stolglav, the hundred rules uh, and he also has a series of military victories. So, importantly, in 1552, he uh, conquers the southern city previously controlled by the sort of Tatar Golden Horde Kazan. And in celebration of that victory, that is the reason for the construction of St. Basil's Cathedral. Uh, which is named after the intercession. Not uh, it's, its popular name is Saint Basil's after a holy fool, a sort of a, a kind of a mendicant, wise. A holy fool is a particular kind of 
cultural tradition of a religious hermit wanderer and truth teller in Russian in Russian uh, culture. But uh, it's popularly named after Basil, who sort of practiced around there. But he it's actual name is named after the intercession of uh, the Blessed Virgin who assisted uh, Ivan to win the Battle of Kazan. And then in 1556, he also captures or conquers Astrakhan, the sort of southern city, which I think is on the sort of the gateway to the Caspian Sea. So he's extending the territory of Russia. And then in 1553, uh, Ivan kind of gets a really bad illness, so bad that he appears to be on his deathbed. And I should say, by this stage, uh, Ivan has married Anastasia Romanova and had uh, uh, his first child with Anastasia Romanova. So he's also concerned to secure the succession of his son and given his own experience of... of uh, <laughs> um, you know, being a bit mistreated as a young, young, um, young uh, impotent prince, uh, he was perhaps rather anxious about it. In any case, uh, during this ill period of illness, there is a dynastic crisis where uh, quite a few people refuse to pledge loyalty to Ivan's preferred successor, his son, in the case of him dying, and Ivan does not take well, uh, does not respond well to all of this. Yet, miraculously perhaps, the illness subsided, and perhaps the overly, uh, the ill-judged and foolish recalcitrance of the various ruling or aristocratic families who did not want to pledge loyalty to Ivan uh, caused a few issues for them because they were now Ivan's sworn enemies. And then in 1558, Ivan, uh, perhaps encouraged by his successes in Kazan, into the south in Kazan and Astrakhan, dealing with you know, the Ottomans and the Crimean Tartars, who were a real threat to to these Russian states, would often raid and capture people for slavery and that sort of thing. In 1558, he starts a war in Livonia, so I guess what we'd now think of as the Baltic states. And this war ends up continuing almost to the end of Ivan's reign, 1583, in fact, it is the war that uh, Antonio Possevino, who started our podcast, helped negotiate a peace to. So a very long war that uh, ends up draining uh, the economic resources of Russia, social resources, political authority and all the rest of it of Russia. It's one of the reasons... One of the key reasons, even though there were some successes and, um, you know, like Smolen like um, some of the uh, areas like Narva and the sort of access to, to the Baltic Sea were successes for Ivan during this war, ultimately it becomes a 
bit of a difficult and complex one and also one where perhaps the Russian military technology is not quite up to scratch with the sort of Polish-Lithuanian kind of Central European uh, military technology that uh, through the... Uh, 16th century, the whole gunpowder revolution and changes in military tactics and all that sort of stuff is changing the face of warfare. Then a catastrophic personal event happens for Ivan in 1560. His wife Anastasia dies. Uh, Again, speculation about poisoning. Ivan perhaps again with... A suspicious mind thinks there is poisoning, but it sort of sends him mad, uh, let's say. He actually gets married pretty soon after, but then engages in wild, well, reportedly at least, engages in pretty wild debauched practices, including sort of pseudo-like practice, like... uh, non-Christian sort of religious practices almost and uh, he, he, his perhaps latent uh, mental health problems which I perhaps get to more in the second episode come out. Then in 1563 another important moderating influence on Ivan one of the like and often people felt that the relationship with Anastasia, um, her character, the stability in his life, perhaps the emotional support for <laughs> what must have been a pretty traumatised young man, uh, gave a stability to this early era of successful institutional reform in Ivan's rule. But then uh, another Um, person who was considered a significant influence on that, the head of the Russian church, the Metropolitan Makhari, dies in in 1563. And uh, in the years after, from 1564, that is when these famous letters from Ivan to Kerbsky um, uh, are sort of being written. And uh, through this time, there are more plots and strange actions. There's particular princes who uh, seem to want to uh, deal with the Lithuanian enemies of Ivan uh, in his war of in Livonia. The war has been going on for several years now and some of the boys are thinking perhaps they should jump ship. Boys is the sort of Russian term for, I guess, lord or... Um, uh, yeah, sort of aristocrat leading figures in the court. And then in 1565, Ivan makes the fateful decision to set up the Oprichnina. And this will uh, operate for seven years, and it is at the heart of the sort of reign of terror and uh, of Ivan's rule. And in a way, there are these sort of, I guess, three phases of Ivan's life and or of his, well, I mean, three main phases of his adult 
period as uh, there's this early era of kind of stability and reform. Then there's the uh, instability that is perhaps precipitated by the death of Anastasia and psychological events as well as political social tensions and difficulties in the war that leads to him setting up this remarkable institution, the Oprichnina, which goes to 1572, and then there's the sort of era after that. So the Oprichnina, which I'll probably talk about a little bit more in the uh, next episode. Now, the Oprichnina is the sort of... um, fairly ghoulish group of, uh, or, or set of arrangements, the terror state that Ivan set up in the 1560s. And there are certainly many ghoulish accounts of it, uh, and, you know, stories of these men in black uniforms uh, or riding into villages wearing uh, kind of skulls and broomsticks and um, whips and killing many, many uh, enemies of the Tsar. But if I just follow Sergei Bogatarev's account of this extraordinary event, he says Muscovy's growing involvement in international affairs and the greater complexity of its social and administrative structures put increasing strain on the limited political resources of the monarchy. By the mid-1560s, Ivan's fears of court feuds and his failures in Western policy were added to his constant trepidation about his family. In search for security, Ivan left Moscow with his family and took up residence at Alexandrovskaya Sloboda, northeast of Moscow. Ivan, having settled there, he accused his old court of treason and the clerics of covering up for the traitors. The Tsar demanded the right to punish his enemies. He divided the territory of his realm his court and the administration into two. The Oprichnina, from Oprich, the Russian word Oprich, meaning separate, under the Tsar's personal control, and the Zemshina, from Zemlia, Zan, officially under the rule of those boyars who stayed in Moscow. And uh, Bogatorov describes the Oprichnina policy as a peculiar combination of bloody terror and acts of public reconciliation. There were numerous executions, probably over 3,000, but then there were also amnesties. People were exiled, their lands were confiscated, but then... In 1566, there was an assembly of the land, a Zemsky Sobor, that talked about whether or not to continue the Livonian War. It's a kind of almost seen by some as a kind of Western Parliament, estate representative institution, but it was certainly a form of, I guess, advice with elites. So, very complicated thing and. 
as I guess I was saying in some of the introductory things, it is a very strange policy at one level, but at another level, it's not so uh, weirdly different to, I guess, Henry VIII separating himself from the established church, creating himself as the head of the church, seizing all the land of the monasteries, uh, and uh, asserting his own con- own personal control over the growing power of the administrative estate uh, of the administrative state, and as a way of tug of war with rival institutions, whether they should be aristocrats or the church. So anyhow, it's incre- it's an incredibly dramatic event hard to understand and there have been a huge range of interpretations in the literature and we might get to some of that in the second episode. Anyhow, um, then in the late 1560s there's also a famous incident where Ivan subjects Metropolitan, the head of the Russian church Metropolitan Philip, to a trial and effectively has him killed in prison. And then in 1570... The infamous uh, massacre in Novgorod occurs where uh, Ivan sort of comes in with all his oprachniki and uh, massacres thousands of the citizens of Novgorod, which had some level of tradition in, of, of uh, I guess, a, a kind of a, a, a tradition of independent Republican democracy almost uh, in resistance to to rule from Moscow and he uh, engages in some extraordinary humiliating acts of uh, he also uh, at least in some accounts sort of takes prisoner the uh, many of the icon painters and the skomoroki who were the sort of minstrel bards or performers uh, in a Russian kind of folk tradition uh, who Ivan had uh, in his really strange cultural mix had quite a fascination with and there's a fine book by uh, I think it's Philip Zaguta about the Russian Skomoroki which actually describes how uh, one or two of these captive Skomoroki would remain Rush uh, Ivan's personal court performers, his personal minstrels, his personal, you know, court poets, almost, uh, for decades after 1570, even perhaps until his death. So, extraordinary uh, event is Isabella Madariaga's um, account, biography, the chapter on Novgorod is described as Armageddon. And, uh, you know, I'm probably running out of time to add too much colour and movement to all of that. But uh, but I guess maybe we'll just uh, add a little bit. And, of course, part of, part of the explanation for this event may well have been there were various plots and uh, traitors in the midst who were close to the Baltic states, the you know, Lithuania, um, etc., who Ivan wanted to punish and exterminate. But in Madariaga's account here, it goes, on Sunday, 8th of January, 1570, that is, 
uh, Ivan proceeded to the Cathedral of St. Sophia and was met on the bridge over the River Volkov by the Archbishop Pyman, hitherto a loyal supporter of Ivan's, bearing aloft the cross and icons. Pandemonium now ensued. The Tsar refused to allow the Archbishop to bless him and loudly accused all Novgorodians of treason. He alleged that they wanted to hand over his patrimony of Novgorod to Latins, to foreigners, to Sigismund Augustus, the sort of, um, I think, Polish king and Holy Roman Emperor. The Nevertheless, Ivan was too pious to miss the service for Epiphany and he attended the Mass before sitting down to the banquet specially prepared for him. He then, in an access of fury, ordered the immediate arrest of Pyman and his boyars. He called up his retainers and launched them on the plundering of the cathedral, tore the white cow from Pyman's head and had his robes removed. Accusing him of being unfit to be an archbishop, he told him he ought to be a strolling player, i.e. Skomoroki, and that he would find him a wife at the expense of the clergy then present, who were forced to hand over large sums of money. Ivan then sent for a mare, a horse, uh, and said to Pyman, Here is your bride. Bestride her and ride to Moscow where you can be enrolled among the strolling players, i.e. Skomoroki. The prelate was mounted facing backwards on the mare, a major ritual humiliation common all over Europe, his feet tied beneath her belly and driven out of the city with a ziver and bagpipes, the accoutrements of a scomorok in his hands as a further humiliation. Since these instruments were banned in Russian churches and escorted to Moscow to await trial. And then there's a whole lot of gruesome stuff about stoves and throwing people into the uh, icy river of the Volkov and all that stuff that I won't get into. But again, there's you get a sense there of Ivan's character of this extreme theatricality and and in some ways sort of kind of evil brilliance, um, but uh, to to purposes that are also kind of hard to kind of make sense of. Skipping forward in 1571, the Crimean Tatars come in and burn Moscow. Um, so it, Moscow is not entirely, a, you know, secure place at this point. Uh, and in 1572, uh, Russia sort of fights back, beats the Crimean Tatars. But it's also in that year that Ivan decides perhaps his experiment with the Oprichnina has been unsuccessful. He brings the end of this reign of terror. He uh, brings this reign of terror of seven years to an end. And strangely enough, uh, in 1572 is the year of the massacre of Saint uh, Bartholomew uh, in Paris. Uh, it's also a year when the King of Poland sort of dies, and there is. In this time, this process for electing the king of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth uh, 
uh, a sort of like a uh, parliamentary election. The 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 uh, Polish-Lithuanian aristocrats get together in an assembly and vote on who they want to have the king to be their king. And Ivan the Terrible actually makes a bid to succeed to the Polish-Lithuanian crown, uh, which seemed to attract some support but was ultimately unsuccessful. And the victor uh, in that particular election was, I think it was Henri Anjou from uh, from France, a member of the royal family, uh, Catherine de Medici's son, who ends up going to Krakow or Warsaw, uh, finds he doesn't like it, and uh, sort of runs away within the year, causing something of a problem. Then in 1575-76, there is a very strange episode in the history of Ivan where, again, he sort of abdicates for a while and puts in his place one of the Tatar, um, sort of Crimean Tatar, Central Asian Tatar princes who uh, were quite prominent in Ivan's court, Simeon Bikbulatovich, who... He makes Tsar for a while, and he claims to, uh, and he sort of operates a sort of a puppet, puppet king for a while. Again, another one of these extraordinary, theatrical, um, but also hard to explain events, but also one that uh, demonstrates these complex strands in uh, Ivan's life, including the, the roles of various Tatar princes and the influence of Mongol political traditions. Uh, then through the uh, late 1570s and early 1580s, um, there are various efforts to negotiate a peace uh, in the long, long Livonian War. And at this point, the, king, the ultimate king of Poland, Lithuania, uh, Ivan's principal antagonist in this long war, is a man called Stepan Batory, who is initially the king of Hungary, and it then uh, becomes, with his election to the Polish-Lithuanian crown, also the king of Hungary, Polish-Lithuania. So this is one of the great moments, I guess, in uh, political integration in that part of the world. He he has quite a few military successes against Ivan and ultimately brings him to a peace agreement, which is negotiated by our friend who started the show, Antonio Posavino. And in uh, Posavino's account of his diplomatic mission to Moscow, he says this, Thousands upon thousands, including members of the nobility, have been slain in the innumerable wars. The Tatars make incessant raids into Muscovy. In one of them, 12 years ago, the capital was burned to the ground. King Stefan, as in King Stefan Pathory of Hungary, Poland, Lithuania, has won an unbroken string of victories during the past three years. Under the circumstances, people have every right to assume that the prince's resources are not so much reduced, by the prince he means Tsar Ivan, 
uh, not so much reduced as almost totally exhausted. It is general knowledge that one can travel 300 miles in any direction in his kingdom without seeing a single person. Villages still stand, but no one lives in them. The fields are universally deserted, but the forest growth over them is fresh. This is proof that the population which previously inhabited the region was substantial. And then uh, also in late 1581 is when Ivan the Terrible uh, kills his son. And I I think I referred to this in the previous uh, episode on the Time of Troubles. And there are various accounts, I guess, of this uh, event. Some say it was intentional, some say it was a fit of rage related somehow to the state of undress of Ivan's son's wife. Uh, Some say it was an accident in a brawl. Uh, We can't really know, but in any case, Ivan is utterly, utterly devastated by uh, the death of his son uh, and perhaps guilt at his rash action, whether accident or intentional or uh, crime of passion. And uh, he does, again, these remarkable, uh, inexplicable things. He he begins to uh, he he sort of expresses wild grief. So there's various accounts of him sort of roaming the palaces of the Kremlin or Alexander Slobodova, and uh, you know sort of wailing and pulling you know sort of scratching the walls. But he also begins to make repentance, if you like, by uh, making lists of all the people he had killed in his life and depositing these as acts of contrition in various churches uh, in Russia. These uh, lists are known as synokdiki in Russian. Again, some... Uh, historians describe this as like some sort of cynical process of ensuring the dynasty. But one really does uh, have to wonder about the very complicated um, theatrical imaginative mind that created this. Because there was no doubt that Iman was an educated and um, in so many ways sophisticated person uh, with these sort of profound religious beliefs, but also deep, deep demons. At some point he was writing songs and uh, about the idea of him being a dread angel who was delivering judgment on the world. Uh, and perhaps at this la- in these last years of, the la- of his life, he seems very much devastated man whose sort of uh, military ambitions have in some respects failed, whose dynastic integrity he himself has uh, wounded and whose uh, country he has devastated through too many years of war and yet who also has some extraordinary achievements uh, 
to his end, one of which is in these final years, in 1582, he, is, he supports the various uh, adventures of a man called Ermark, which lead to the defeat of the Siberian Khan, and then therefore the start of the establishment of political control, political administrative control of Siberia and the enormous uh, access to all sorts of resources, uh, including furs, of course, uh, of Siberia as part of the Russian Empire. In 1584, that is when Ivan dies, and his death, just as his life, is uh, enigmatic. And if I just read from uh, uh, Isabella de Madariaga's wonderful biography of Ivan the Terrible, which is my preferred biography of uh, him, because it is that balanced and empathetic uh, understanding, which nonetheless does not forgive him for his, his terrible uh terrible uh, actions um, uh, but he she writes there that there's just one eyewitness account of Ivan's the death Ivan's death and that is by a man called Jerome Horsey who was a British merchant and this is another aspect of Ivan's reign because there was various uh, English merchants who were establishing themselves in uh, Russia at this point to sort of make the most of the extraordinary trade and resources in a Russia's possession. And she carries on with the last day of his death. On the day of his death, Ivan was carried as usual in his chair to his treasury chamber, called for precious stones and jewels to be brought, and proceeded to lecture those about him on their properties and virtues taking coral and turquoise stones on his hand and arm ivan declared according to horsey i am poisoned with disease you see they show their virtue but a change of their pure color into paul declares my death turquoises were supposed to change color in the presence of poison you see in the afternoon ivan looked over his will ordered his position and his apothecary to attend him to the bath, and then sent for a report from his witches. Yes, that's right. Uh, Ivan was uh, quite fond of witches and sorcerers and alchemists and all sorts of non-traditional practices. Sent for his witches because the day foretold for his death was coming to an end. But he was warned that there was still time, for the day only ended when the sun went down. In the afternoon he went to the bath, solaced himself, and made merry with pleasant songs as he used to do. He then went to bed well refreshed in his loose gown, shirt, and linen hose and sent for a chessboard. Bogdan Belsky and Boris Godunov, whose names you might remember from uh, last week's episode on the Time of Troubles, and if you haven't listened to that, do check it out. Uh, the two leading rival boyers in, or, you know, principal advisors in, in um, Ivan's court, 
stood by the bed. Bogdan Belsky and Boris Godunov stood by the bed. Suddenly, Ivan fainted and fell back. The apothecary sent for marigold and rose water, for the physicians and for Ivan's confessor. And then Horsey wrote this strange, strange sentence. In the mean, he was strangled and stark dead, writes Horsey, and added that an attempt to save him was made to still the outcry. But it was too late. Horsey does not uh, mention any effort to tonsure Ivan as a monk at the time, and he died without the last rites. But his confessor did hurry in to clothe him afterwards in the angel's form under the name of Iona, or brother Jonas, in uh, anglicised form. So that is the death of a remarkable person, and just like the mystery around false Dimitri, there is just something of a mystery around the death of Ivan the Terrible. Was he poisoned? Was it, Did he die of natural causes? What exactly did Jerome Halsey mean by strangled and stark dead? Was there someone in his uh, court? Maybe one of those captive scomoroki who might have strangled him to death. We will never know. We can only imagine some parts of history are really only there for us to try to imagine. So I hope that uh, narrative account of Ivan the Terrible's extraordinary life uh, gives you both some flavour for the enigma and the fascination, uh, but also the reality, the achievements, the terror, the horror, the violence, uh, and the uh, nature of Ivan as not necessarily an evil monster, but a, a flawed, probably in some ways, personality-disordered individual who was struggling with uh, the uh, integration of uh, a, a, a state, uh, the, the defining of a form of rule of an empire with uh, enormous international and internal social and political tensions that was not so wildly different to other uh, Renaissance princes. Um, he certainly was perhaps on the extreme end of the violence and perhaps uh, on the extreme end of the uh, personality spectrum, but his his uh, attempts to create a form of viable p- 
powerful centralized state uh, and secure the um, the future of his dynasty uh, despite all his erratic actions was ultimately uh, successful uh, and uh, hence we have the extraordinary enigma of Ivan the Terrible and the reason he is so central to both the black legend of Russian history but perhaps even more so than that how he is almost like a symbol of power itself strange sometimes violent sometimes creative sometimes theatrical sometimes constructive but uh, or something also that almost destroys the individual who, uh, who, 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 who makes use of power. Uh, okay, so in next week's episode, that's the end of part one, in next week's episode, I'm going to look at some of these common themes uh, in... Ivan the Terrible's life to step back a little bit from the narrative account. Once you have that basic story in your head, let's talk about some of the underlying themes about the nature of Ivan's power, the nature of his violence, uh, the nature of his mind, this strange mix of order, disorder, and dread angels and perhaps maybe a little bit more on the enigma of his death uh, and then finally his legacy historically culturally politically in terms of understanding russia uh, and perhaps also the need to separate the remarkable and uh, disordered world of 16th century Eurasia from Russia today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, I'll be back in a week with part two of this uh, extended episode on Ivan the Terrible and his role in the dark legend black legend of russian history uh i can also uh just little shout out that you can check out my youtube channel in which i'm putting up some progressively some video versions of the podcasts as well as some other content and uh you can also buy my newly published book from the Burning Archive uh, by Amazon or other other online retail outlets. It's now out as a ebook and a print book. And uh, be great if you could support uh, me as a as a, uh, a sort of late career podcaster in that way. And um, late career historian in that uh, in that way uh, and I'll put links to to that in the show notes uh, okay everyone do remember 
what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee.